0: Let's begin here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 1 we'll read the verses 1 and 2 for context and then we're going to focus in on verses 3 through 7 today. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pause there and let's pray. Father, as we come before you today to look into your word. God, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit right now, minister and do a work in our hearts that would be a lasting work. And Lord, on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we pray for all of those men and women who right now are fighting that battle for the unborn. We thank you for them. We pray that that you would strengthen them, provide for them, that you would sustain them. And God, we thank you for that work that they do. But Lord, we also pray today for those maybe in this room who have had an abortion or been a part of an abortion. God, we thank you that you are the God who forgives, that you are the God who restores, that we have a future and a hope that even involves that child because of Jesus. And so today, Lord, we ask that you would just bless and honor and encourage and meet us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have had, found yourself in the past nine months asking this question? What in the world is going on? How many of you find yourself asking that question? Yeah, Our world is unstable. And so we find ourselves so often, I think, asking that question. And I think the people that Peter was writing to here in the first century, they felt the same way. Remember, Peter's writing to a people who were suffering. He's writing to a people who were being hammered by persecution. And so I'm sure that they found themselves at times asking that same question. Lord, what in the world is going on? But I remind you, as we started this study last week, that Peter is not writing this letter to instruct them on how to avoid suffering or how to escape suffering, but he's writing to encourage these believers and us on how to endure suffering. And you know what? It's not enough that we ask the question, What in the world is going on, Lord? We need to follow that up with this question. In spite of or in light of what is going on in the world, Lord, how do you want me to respond? What should be my response? And that really is at the focal point in the heart of Peter's letter as he's writing to encourage them in the midst of their suffering on how they should respond. And we noted last week that Peter roots everything that he's going to say to these believers. Everything is rooted in their identity in Christ. We'll see that theme throughout the book. And here's why that's so important. The absolute key to living our lives the way that God intended, and in a way that will glorify and honor God, the absolute key to that is to know who you are in Christ. And then to learn how to respond to what life throws at you in that reality of who you are in Jesus. The title of the message today is Rejoicing in Suffering, Part 2. And I I want you to notice verse 6, that's kind of the capstone verse in which all of these first, oh, probably 12 verses hinge on and are centered around. As he said this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The word grieve that he uses there is the word lupeo in the Greek. And it's a word that literally means distressed. It describes an emotional weight that feels, it's so heavy that it feels like you are being crushed. Some of you maybe feel that way right now. Maybe it's because of problems going on in your marriage. Maybe it's because of a wayward son or daughter who have, who have walked away from the faith. Maybe it's because of a recent diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe it's because of, of the recent loss of a loved one. Whatever the situation is that you're going through, it weighs so heavy on your heart that there are days and times where it just feels like it's going to crush you. And yet here we see Peter saying, in the midst of when we're going through that type of emotion, that we should rejoice Literally, he says that we should greatly rejoice. Remember last time we talked about the definition was that we should be jumping for joy. And we noted that, I I gave you a picture of what that looked like last week. (laughs) (laughs) Jumping for joy? When we read that, we think, is Peter, it almost seems like he's being incredibly insensitive. And we wonder, is, is Peter like writing from some ivory tower? Is is he, you know, detached and just, you know, all locked up in some room with his books and, and, and he's just detached? And, and, we, and we need to put away that mindset because notice in the very first verse it says this. Peter addresses himself, identifies himself this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle means messenger. So that means everything that that Peter is writing to us here is coming from the heart of Jesus himself. Everything that he is writing is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we also need to remember that, that Peter's writing here in the first century and to be a Christian, a Christ follower in the first century was dangerous. In fact, Peter would actually be killed for his faith. He would be crucified upside down. But here Peter says that we should greatly. Rejoice. And we noticed, we noted last week that he gives us reasons, seven reasons in these opening verses, and all of these reasons why we can rejoice in our suffering are connected to our identity in Christ. We looked at three of them last week. The first one we saw in verse one, it was because this world is not our home. And Peter identifies his readers and us there as pilgrims. And the idea is a pilgrim is somebody who is away from home, but he's going home. He's on a journey. And so the idea that the Lord is wanting us to have is don't get too comfortable in this life. Don't get too comfortable in this place. I love the insight that the author Paul Tripp gives as it relates to this. He says this, if you are God's child, you are called to cross-cultural living. This world is not for you, the comfortable place that it once was, because you are now called by your Lord to operate by a different set of standards. Your heart is motivated by a different set of motivations. You serve a different king. That's such great insight from Paul Tripp. We are not comfortable like we used to be prior to coming to Christ because we have different motivations now. We are serving a different king. So the first uh, reason that Peter gives us is that we should rejoice in our suffering, this world is not our home. We saw reason number two in verse two when he says that we belong to God. He puts it this way, you are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And we noted that God has called you, he has chosen you to be his, and God is actively writing your story right now, but we need to understand God is not just the author of our story, but he's also the hero of our story, that he, he comes to show up in the midst of these difficult times. And then we saw the third reason why he gives us this reason to rejoice also in verse two is that we have been given the Holy Spirit. Peter puts it this way. He talks about the sanctification of the spirit and the word sanctification means to be set apart. And the idea is that the Holy Spirit right now is setting you apart for this unique work that God is seeking to do in your life and with your life. Well, today we're going to look at four more reasons why we can greatly rejoice in the midst of our suffering. And again, these four reasons are connected to our identity in Christ. So reason number four is this, because Jesus has risen from the dead. Notice how Peter puts this in verse three. He says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But I want you to notice that he says first that all of that is according to God's mercy. The word mercy means not getting what you do deserve. Now somewhere along the line, when my son Aaron was young, he picked up what that word mercy meant. Because anytime he got in trouble, and I was going to spank him, he would start yelling, Mercy! Mercy! I want mercy! Mercy! I used to wonder what our neighbors were thinking. What, what's happening over there you know, at the Salvato house? Is there kids yelling for mercy all the time? <laughs> but note, the idea here is that God did something for us that we didn't deserve. We were lost in our sin and our rebellion against God. And what did he do? He sent his only begotten son, Jesus to leave heaven and come to this earth so that he could go to the cross where he would pay the price for our sins and he would die there in our place, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead to give life to anyone who would put their faith and their trust in him. And Peter says all of that comes to us from the mercy of God. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I ask you this question. Who better to write about being given a hope that is through God's mercy than Peter? Of all the disciples, Peter is the one that I identify with the most. Peter was a type A personality. He would have been a one on the Enneagram chart. He was a can-do kind of guy, a take-charge kind of guy. He was self-confident. He was impulsive. He wasn't one to back down. And there were even times when he thought he was more loyal than everybody else. Remember on the night when Jesus is in the upper room? It's the night before the cross. And he says to his disciples, all of you are going to forsake me tonight. What does Peter say? (laughs) Not me. The rest of these guys, they might forsake you. But Lord, I'm not going to forsake you. I will even die for you. Remember what Jesus told him? He said, actually, Peter, tonight before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times. And Peter was like, no way. Well, they leave the upper room. They go to the garden. Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside. And he says, I want you guys to pray. Watch and pray with me. And it was obvious that Jesus was really, really distressed in his spirit. And so he says, watch and pray. And what happens? All three of them, they fell asleep. Jesus had to wake them up three times. So Peter, he's, when he's supposed to be praying, he's sleeping. Well, then the soldiers come. To arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter whips out his sword. This is his moment. I'll show you. I'm ready to die for you. And he, he swings at this guy by the name of Malchus. And clips his ear. Cuts his ear off. And Jesus is like, Peter, Peter, Peter. No, no, no. Put away your sword. This isn't the time for that. And then he does something incredible. He picks up the ear off of Malchus. Malchus's ear that's on the ground. He picks it up and he puts it back on his head. And heals him just to cover Peter's blunder so there could be no accusation. Malchus can't go to the authorities and say, you need to arrest this guy, he cut my ear off. They're like, which one, you know? But then it happens. As they take Jesus away, the Bible tells us that Peter follows at a distance. And when they're putting Jesus under trial, this mock trial, and the beating that he goes through in the courtyard there, Peter is off in the distance, but visible, huddled around a fire. And some little servant girl goes, I recognize you. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter's like, no, I don't, I don't even know him. Later on, somebody says, I, you, that Galilean accent, it gives you away. You're one of his followers. He's like, no, I'm, I'm telling you, no. And then someone else a third time, and Peter literally cusses. He's like, I blankety-blank, blank, I don't even know the man. And then the rooster crows. And we're told in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, that at that moment, Peter and Jesus had eye contact. They looked at one another. What do you think that look was like? I don't think Jesus gave him the stink eye, you know? You know that look? Sometimes my wife gives me that look, like what you just said was really stupid, you know? I don't think he gave him that, see, I told you so kind of look, you know, like, mm, I told you so, you know? I don't think it was that either. I think it was a look of compassion. I think it was a look of love. I think it was a look that was saying, Peter, It's okay. I'm still with you. Why do I think that? Well, when Jesus rose again from the dead, and the first person that sees him in the garden is Mary Magdalene, remember what he says to her? He tells Mary, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter that I've risen. Why does he single out Peter? Was Peter not a disciple anymore? I think that's how Peter felt. I think Peter felt that his betrayal, you know, his, his denial was so great that he was disqualified. In fact, it says when he looked at Jesus, and he realized what he had done, that he went and wept bitterly. That word wept bitterly, the idea is like convulsing type of crying. We're talking crocodile tears, snot nose. I mean, just, just really, really just heaving, crying. And I think Peter felt like, you know, I, I, I'm disqualified. And Jesus was wanting him to know that's not true. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that Jesus actually went and he sought out Peter after the resurrection that they had a private meeting where I think Jesus was encouraging him that he was forgiven, that it was okay. And then later after the resurrection in Luke chapter 21, Peter pulls or Jesus pulls Peter aside and literally commissions him into his service. And here Peter's saying, Hey, it's according to the Abundant, the great mercy of God that we have been born again, begotten to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I think there's a lesson in here for us, and the lesson is this, that our failures don't have to define us. Peter learned, man, my failures don't have to define me. You know, so often we tend to allow ourselves to be Defined by our failures, don't we? Or we let others define us by our failures. You know, sometimes even in the body of Christ, we will say things like, "Oh, so and so, such a flake." You know how God responds to that? God doesn't say, "Yeah, and that flake is my son." No, He doesn't say that. He says, "That guy is my son. That gal, she's my daughter." I love them. I'm committed to them. I'm in it for the long haul with them. Isn't that awesome for us to realize? I think another thing that what Peter's saying here teaches us, another lesson is, is that we have power right now to live for Jesus. Paul prayed this for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter one. I love this prayer. Verses 19 and 20. He says, I'm praying that you would come to know by experience what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is saying, I'm praying for you that you would know by experience the power that's available to you and it's the very power that brought Jesus Christ out of the grave. Peter experienced that power. Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, went on to do incredible things in the power of his risen Savior. He went from being a coward to someone who was filled with supernatural boldness. And Peter and Paul want all of us to know that that same power is available to us. That we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we can rejoice in our suffering because the Bible tells us that God's grace is sufficient for us. That word sufficient means it's more than enough. And his power is made perfect. The idea in that is that it's manifested to the greatest degree. It's made perfect. It's manifested to the greatest degree when? In our suffering. In our weakness. Because when we're weak, he is strong. And Peter says, this is the living hope. And I love that word hope because that word hope means an absolute expectation of coming good. In other words, it's something that you can bank on. Which leads us to reason number five of why we can rejoice in our suffering. Found there in verse four, Peter tells us that we have an inheritance in Christ. Notice he says, we've been born again to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. And that does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. Think about it this way. God has a spiritual trust fund put away for you. You know, you may not be rich right now. You may not be rich in wealth. You may not be rich in experience. You may not be rich in friends. But you are marching toward unbelievable and incalculable riches that are in Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ that can never be corrupted, defiled, or tarnished. And these three verbal adjectives indicate that the inheritance that is waiting for us is untouched by death, unstained by evil, evil and unimpaired by time in other words it's unlike anything else in this world now you can go down to Toyota of Carlsbad today buy yourself a brand new car and they tell us that that car depreciates by a thousand dollars the minute you drive it off the lot so, you get home and you start saying, You know, I should have got the light interior instead of the dark interior. We live in California and it's hot. I'm going to take it back tomorrow, and you show up tomorrow. And they could say, Hopefully they would, but they could say, You know what? That's going to cost you a grand. It depreciated that much in just that one day, that one moment. Jewelry gets tarnished, fades. Brand new houses have problems connected to them. But not our inheritance in heaven. Our inheritance in heaven is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. And and Peter says, and it's reserved in heaven for you. The idea there is it's kept or it's guarded. You know, a reservation is supposed to mean that you can't get bumped, right? Right? But I've had this happen. I make an airline reservation. I pick my seat. I'm very particular about where I sit. And I show up at the airport only to find out that I've been bumped and somebody else has my seats. Or you make a reservation at some restaurant. Remember when we could eat in restaurants? You know, you make a reservation at some restaurant. Beautiful window or, you know, table by the window. It's a special occasion. And you get there only to find out that someone more important showed up and got that table. Well, listen, you don't have to worry about that in heaven. Your inheritance is reserved. It's waiting for you. And so Peter is com- comforting these people by reminding them that what's, of what's waiting for them on the other side of the trial. I think we see a great example of this. When a couple finds out they're going to have a baby. What do they do? They jump for joy. Whoa, we're having a baby. Even this soon to be mother, she's jumping for joy, even though she realizes she knows what she's about to experience is going to be very, very hard. All of her hormones are going to change. They're going to get all out of whack. Her body's going to change and get super uncomfortable. She's going to start craving weird foods and have the urge to regurge more than she's ever had, you know, in any other time in her life. For nine months, she's just going to go through life not feeling like herself. And then after nine months, she's going to go through the most horrible pain that she's ever experienced in her life for several hours. And yet she rejoices when she finds out because she knows as soon as, as, soon as she's holding that baby in her arms, it's going to be, it's all going to be worth it. And the young man, the father-to-be, as soon as he finds out, he's jumping for joy because he doesn't have to go through any of that. <laughs> I think we should celebrate Mother's Day like every month, you know? Peter says you can jump for joy in knowing what's waiting for you on the other side. It's going to be worth it. Paul loved to write about this. Paul suffered a ton in his life. But knowing what was coming on the other side is what kept him going. He wrote this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory that is coming is so great that the suffering right now, is it's not even worthy to be compared to what is coming. He said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. He went through some difficult things, but then he says after this, therefore, in verse 16, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we we do not look at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary. Everybody say temporary. But the things which are are not seen are eternal. The difficulties that we're going through right now that loom so large on our hearts that sometimes they feel like they're going to crush us. Paul says in comparison to the glory that awaits us, we're going to look back and go, that was a light affliction. That was nothing. Heaven and eternity with Jesus will be so great that the trial will seem in hindsight like nothing to us. And so this is what Peter and Paul both are wanting us to understand. Don't miss this. Heaven is not just a destination for us. Heaven is a motivation for us. It motivates us to live our life for Jesus. It motivates us that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know what's waiting for us is going to be worth it. But I want you to notice this. Peter says, you have this inheritance that is being kept, reserved, guarded by the power of God. And then he says, and you yourself are being kept by the power of God for your inheritance. And this is our reason number six. We are being kept by the power of God. Again, notice verse four. He says that we're born again to an inheritance as incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Here's the key verse five who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Imagine this you are searching for the best bank possible to place your inheritance in where it's going to be secure. And you find this bank, and that bank manager says to you, Mr. Salvato, I want you to know that your inheritance is going to be safe and secure here. But then he continues, and he says, you know what, though? We're not just concerned about your inheritance. We're concerned about you. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to hire the best bodyguard possible to follow you around. We're gonna hire the best possible dietitian to help you eat right. We're gonna hire the best physical trainer to help you work out. We're gonna have the best doctor available so if you get sick, he can take care of you. And we're gonna provide the best counselor to care for your mental health because he says, we want you to know that when your inheritance is available, that you're gonna be ready to receive it and enjoy it. How awesome would that be? Well, in essence, that's what God is saying. That's the guarantee that God gives. I'm not just keeping you or keeping an inheritance for you. I'm keeping you for your inheritance by my power. So that means we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering and trials because we know this. God's got me and God is for me and nothing is going to happen to me that is outside the realm of his care or his plan for my life. Which leads us then to reason number seven. Your faith is being strengthened. The reason we can rejoice in these trials and suffering because of who we are in Christ is because it means our faith is being strengthened. Look at verse six. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something. When Peter uses this word tested, he doesn't mean like an exam. He's not saying that you're given a test that you somehow need to pass or a test that you can fail. He's actually talking here about tempering. He's talking about what happens when the metals are put into the fire. And he actually uses the example of the goldsmith. And you see, the goldsmith, when he's seeking to purify the gold, he'll take that bar of gold, he'll put it in the fire, and when he puts it in the fire, what happens is all the impurities rise to the surface. And then he takes it out, he scrapes off all those impurities, he lets it rest a little while, and then he puts it back into the fire. And guess what happens? More impurities rise to the surface. Well, in a similar way, there are impurities in you and I. We have impurities. We're not perfect. We're sinners. We're flawed. And so it's the trial that brings those impurities to the surface. It reveals them. It allows us to see areas of our life that still need to be transformed by God. Let me give you an example for my life. One of the areas where I know that I'm just constantly, God is working on me, is in the area of patience. Patience. I've never been a very patient person. I'm not patient in situations. I'm not patient with myself. And oftentimes, I'm not patient with others. Now, my wife, she would attest that I'm growing in this area, though, in my life. But here is a regular occurrence that takes place in my life. Whenever I'm driving in traffic, it does not matter what lane I get in. It's always going to be the slowest lane. (laughs) Happens every single time. And when I go to a store, when I go shopping at some store, and, you know, like a lot of guys, shopping for me, it's like shopping for men is like a sport. And the goal is to get in and out of the store with what you went came to get in the fastest amount of time possible. That's the sport. That's the goal. So I go to a store, and I go grab what, you know, I want, and it doesn't matter happens almost every single time. When I get up to the register, I always pick the line that ends up being the slowest. I I can pick a line that only has two people in it. The person in front of me only has 10 things and she gets up there and then she whips out 50 coupons and she has three price checks. (laughs) And I'm like sitting there just going like, oh. In fact, I was in Walmart the other day. I only had to get two things. I was on a mission. I was going to break my time. (laughs) So I'm power walking through the store. I grab my two things. I'm so happy. I'm making record time. I get up to the register and there's a register that's open. There's only one person in it. Her cart is already half emptied. I'm thinking this is going to be amazing. But then I get this chatty cashier. You know what I'm talking about? I'm standing there and her and this lady, they start talking like she's not scanning anymore. They're just talking and they're talking like they're lifelong friends. Maybe they were, I don't know. But I'm just like thinking to myself like, come on already. Precious time is ticking. 30 minutes go by. I mean, really, it was like two, but it felt like 30, okay? And I literally start thinking horrible things. About these two people that I don't even know. (laughs) And then I catch myself. I'm like, what in the world am I doing? And that's when God like speaks to me. Right there in Walmart. He's like, Rob, relax. Slow down. Enjoy the moment. I literally just started laughing out loud in Walmart. They look at me. And I'm so glad I had my earbud in. Because I like pointed like I was listening to something. You know? I'm so afraid that I'm going to get up to the cashier and she's going to ask me, what were you listening to that was so funny? I'm going to have to tell her it was uh, talking to God about the two of you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But that's just something stupid, you know, like being stuck in a line or stuck in traffic. But what about when a pandemic hits our life gets turned upside down? I got to tell you, first three weeks of the pandemic for me were not pretty. Because I'm feeling like, you know, everything going on around here is not going the way that, that it should be. And we've never dealt with this unprecedented times. And I'm just irritable. I'm hard to live with. I'm hard to work with. And, and what's happening? All the impurities in my heart are coming to the surface. And God is allowing me once again to see the areas of my life that he's needing to deal with. Here's the thing that we need to understand. In times of difficulty, we often pray for God's grace of release or God's grace of relief. God, get me through this or God, make this end. But instead, you know what God often gives us? Then then his grace of relief or release, he gives us his grace of refinement. He's refining us. You see, God loves you too much to keep you the way that you are. His end game in your life is to make you more like Jesus. This brings us back to the analogy of the goldsmith. You know how the goldsmith knows that the, the gold is pure? So when he pulls it out of the fire, he doesn't see any impurities anymore, but what he sees is his reflection. You know how God knows that you and I are being purified? In that area of our life that he's working on is when he pulls us out of the fire. And in that area of our lives, he sees the reflection of Jesus. He sees himself in us. And guys, that's exactly the point that Peter is making when he says here in verse 7 notice again, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, here's the key phrase may be found. Everybody say, may be found. To praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To put it another way, the trial that you're going through is so that your faith may be found to bring praise, honor, and glory to Jesus when he is revealed. Now here's the thing I want to end with today. I don't want you to miss this. This is huge. Everything that God is now doing in your life is being done for the glory of another. It's being done for his glory. And you will never understand the things that God brings into your life until you understand that everything that he is doing in your life is being done for a zeal that he has for his own glory to be displayed in us. And there's no place of greater dignity, there's no place of greater honor, there's no place of greater blessing than that, that somehow in some way that my life would point to the glory of my Redeemer. It's coming to that place of realizing I exist. It's why he saved me and made me. I exist, the Bible says, to bring him glory. But this is where we so often struggle we get sidetracked into thinking that life is really about our glory. The glory of our good decisions that plan out a life without problems. The glory of our comfort, the glory of our pleasure, the glory of our success, the glory of our achievement that is going to then lead to the glory of our acceptance by others. And we are always wanting to bask in those physical Temporal created glories. If we're honest. I think most of us would choose rather momentary glory. Than to be a part of the larger glory of God. But listen. Every time that God is challenging our, our, our ideas of glory. Is we find ourselves in those times so often questioning his faithfulness. God. Why are you allowing this to happen? God, where are you? We question his goodness. We question his love. In fact, let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest in your heart. When's the last time that you found yourself questioning God? God, where are you? Questioning his goodness. Questioning his faithfulness. When's the last time that you looked at someone else and envied their life because you felt like what they had, what they had been given was better than what you had been given, that it was easier than what you have. Listen, those reactions are all motivated by self-glory. And you'll never understand what God is doing unless you understand there's a glory war that is going on in the turf of your heart. And God is zealous, though, to deliver you and me from our obsession with our own glory because he knows that we'll never, ever, ever be truly satisfied until we are focused on and captivated by his glory rather than our own. And so when we realize that, when we come to embrace that, here's what happens. We realize that our life is a platform upon which God can be glorified. Our life is like a stage and the world is an audience and they're watching to see how we're going to respond when the difficult things happen. Are we going to turn from God? Are we going to complain? Are we going to lose faith? Or are we going to lean into him so that he can show up and do a work in us and a work for us that is beyond our comprehension? And when that happens, Jesus gets the glory. The world looks on and they're like, wow, what an awesome God he serves. So listen. Listen, friends, we can rejoice in our suffering today. We can jump for joy when we realize we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That means that our failures don't have to define us. That means that we have power available to live for today for Jesus. It means that we have an inheritance that is reserved, your name is on it, that is being kept for you, and you are being kept for it by the power of God and the fire that you might find yourself in right now just means that God is committed he loves you and he's committed to do the work that he started in you the work to make you like Jesus the fire brings out the impurities but your gracious heavenly father scrapes them away allows you to go back into the fire because he's doing a work in you that ultimately Your life, my life, is going to bring him greater glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you, Lord, that you are committed to us. We thank you, God, for the grace of refinement. That you allow us to go through the fire. But you're with us in the fire. That you surround us, that you don't abandon us. And Lord, I pray that we would find ourselves today as we just end this time together saying in our hearts, and may it just be true of our lives, that Lord, we want to be focused on, preoccupied with your glory and not our own. We love you, Lord.